welcome to the evolution exchange nhs podcast here at evolution recruitment nhs we are committed to helping people and nhs organizations realize their potential our goal is to build trust and develop deep relationships with individuals to make doing business easier we collaborate with nhs organizations to help them build high performing digital teams We achieve this by creating and sharing insights into the ever-evolving NHS and digital industries best practices. I'm Katia and I am your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect official position or policy of their organisation. So thank you for joining me all today to discuss digital transformation in the NHS. Before we delve into the topic, we'll start with some introductions. So Steve, would you like to go first? Yeah, sure. Uh, Good morning, everybody. I'm Steve Bowyer. I'm Chief Digital Officer at East Midlands Ambulance Service. Um, We, as the name suggests, provide uh, 999 and uh, patient transport services across the East Midlands area. Um, I cover everything in the digital arena, everything from information security, information governance, project delivery, technical, business intelligence, etc, etc. So that that whole gamut of uh, the digital spectrum. Perfect, thank you. And Philip? Hi, good morning everyone. I'm Professor Philip Begg. I'm Executive Director for Strategy and Delivery at the Royal Orthopaedic Hospital, a small specialist trust but beautifully formed, uh, very much punching above its weight and providing excellence in all areas of orthopaedics, particularly in ortho-oncology, spinal and uh, arthroplasty. Uh, innovations around robotics, uh, particularly, is one of our big drivers at the moment. Um, so my responsibilities here are for all delivery of particularly uh, corporate projects, including digital. I work with my colleague Steve Washbourne, who's our director of finance, who's our CIRO in the trust, um, and uh, we're working on delivering our uh, digital strategy across the trust over the next five years uh, with an excellent team here. So really pleased to be on this podcast and and great to be working with uh, Martin and Steve and yourself, Katty. Thank you. And last but not least, Martin. Yeah, hi there, everyone. So I'm Martin Perry. I'm the Director of Digital Transformation at Midlands Partnership NHS Foundation Trust. So we're based in Stafford, but we've got services up and down the country, Staffordshire, Shropshire. Uh, We do community physical health, mental health, specialist services, um, and that includes learning disabilities, forensics, prisons, sexual health, dental, diabetic retinopathy, IAP services. So in terms of, and, and more by the way, so in, in terms of the health and social care services we provide, it's quite a vast array of different specialist services and digital systems. Day to day, I um, drive the delivery of the digital strategy, which I authored and presented last uh, last year to the organisation. I'm really keen at just driving that digital transformation and making sure we progress on our digitisation journey. Brilliant. Thank you, Martin. Um, So now that we are introduced, I think it's about time to get into the topic. So um, as usual, I will work my way around the panel. Um, If you could all give your question with a little bit of context around it. Steve, I'm going to come to you first. Would you like to start us off? Yeah, of course. Um, My question hopefully resonates with with the rest of the panel and it's relating to shortfalling in uh, staffing levels, 
but also in the skills we've got within the workforce. And, and it's really asking for views on how we support maintaining momentum of digital transformation with a, a shortfall of staff that we have. Also, bear in mind, we are struggling to keep people and we're struggling to recruit into the NHS for whatever reason. Um, I guess I'm looking for an answer that is the panacea to those woes because, you know, we're all in that boat, aren't we? We're struggling to get good staff, keep good staff and keep them motivated and interested in staying in the NHS. It's a great question, Steve. It really is. And I think it's one that I suspect Martin shares with myself and yeah. you. Um, and certainly we've seen here exactly the picture you describe. Um, trying to keep really good digital expertise within the organisation is immensely difficult. And I think it's I've been reflecting on it recently because we've actually got one of our key people about to move on. And you know how, what that does to our innards when we start to think, uh, how are we going to yeah. deliver this without this yep. key individual? Um, and uh, so I took the opportunity yesterday and it's really it's really useful to our discussion to sit down with this chap and he's actually leaving the NHS. And um, I was asking him why, what was behind it. Um, and he, he's been in the NHS 20 years. And I was worried it was perhaps burnout. Uh, I was worried that perhaps um, we weren't giving him enough of a challenge. Um, and, you know, is it the remnants of COVID? You know, with these guys, like all of us, have worked incredibly hard. And what it is, is the lack of opportunity to progress. Um, he's got to a position within the organisation and there's 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 no way to progress. So I wonder if part of it is, you know, do we actually, if, if digital is the key that we're really interested in and is about our future, don't we have to work around trying to create some better, um, uh, you know, career opportunities within our digital teams? Yeah, and I, I agree. There's a, there's a couple of areas there that resonate. And I just think, for the digital workforce, what I found there's a degree of separation between what really drives the majority of the workforce to remain in the NHS. And it's a difference between a passion for care and a passion for digital, because I think some of the digital workforce can fulfil that passion in private sector and other areas, whereas you can't fulfil that passion for care in many other areas. Um, and I think that that is something that I've been thinking about in terms of how do we how do we make sure that the the values of our digital staff and the opportunities for our digital staff to see the absolute difference they're making for health and social care services on the front line yeah. for the patients and service users and carers across our populations, yeah. giving them that opportunity to then get that drive and that motivation. Um, the other thing that we're actually struggling with as well, and you alluded to it, Steve, in your question, is the workforce capacity within those clinical teams, the business readiness to actually receive the digital transformation, co-design it and then co-deliver it and embed it and entrench it within new processes. And we're seeing vacancy rates, sickness rates absolutely impact on our ability to digitise um, at pace, which is often the requirement, certainly since COVID, but it's been to the floor, hasn't it, down to the floor. So. 
Um, and I think I think that is something again which is quite concerning actually in terms of uh, it requires a bit of a culture change actually that historically it was IT not digital and IT would be responsible for fixing the thing or delivering the thing you've asked for. Yes. Digital it's a co-design collaborative approach and you really need to work together and having having the clinical services and care services to, to kind of mutually prioritize these things and understand that actually they may need to take time away from directly caring for people to co-design their digital transformation new ways of working is quite a challenge when the capacity issues are there um so i think that's there's no answers is there i don't think but there are there are areas to kind of consider yeah i mean i i don't know that martin and steve have experienced the same thing i was just thinking about what you were saying there martin and i I remember reflecting on the last staff survey um, and looking particularly one section which was uh, from our, our digital teams, which the question which talks about, do you think that what you do contributes to patient care? And the number was very low because they, I just don't feel that they felt valued enough as actually a group of staff that make a difference to patients and they absolutely do you know everything that we do relies on it yeah I, I certainly agree and we often talk to our staff about seeking opportunities to go and actually see what you do and how it makes an impact to patient mm. care and to staff um, yeah, and in, in an ambulance community I absolutely understand not everybody wants to go and ride along for a day on an ambulance I, I fully understand and respect that. But I think you're right, you know, and, and Martin, your point about it used to be IT fixing stuff. We were always the people stuck in the back room, weren't we, wearing the, the Megadeth T-shirt, the shorts and the sandals. Um, and so nobody really wanted to talk to us. And now I, I think, and it's part and parcel of the broader context of digital, I think, the cultural change yeah. from IT to digital I think organisations are still a little bit behind in that inclusivity of digital is part and parcel of our journey. Yeah. Um, and it almost feels sometimes, I guess, that digital and IT staff are still held out on a limb. Mm. And we're yeah. not front and centre when we're talking about co-design. But at the same time, how often do we get given stuff? Can you just make that work without any consultation or input at all? Yeah. And, and it's really hard, just... isn't it? Because people just get de completely demoralized with it when they think more work coming in that we knew nothing about. Mm -hmm. But do you think do you think the wider um, healthcare community, whether it's acute, whether it's specialist ambulance, whether it's the vast array, I know I know Martin's uh, organization quite well. Um, uh, and the vast array of services that and I watching that Martin and his organization actually uh, delivers. Do you think that the people understand what digital is? Because that's one of the things I think we struggle with is when we talk to the staff on the wards and in the departments, do they actually understand what digital is? I'm not sure they do. I think I think in MPFT, it's a, it's a, I think our board do. I think our leadership teams yeah. do. Yeah. I think I think the difference is though is that it's the and it's something I'm you know personally working on and working on with the teams but it's the the behavior changes need to catch up with that understanding slightly now i yeah. think that's the thing so 
So absolutely they do, and they absolutely understand the importance. I mean, our teams are ham- hammered with requests and requirements and change yeah. everything. There's not a single thing yeah. that doesn't have digital involvement in it now. Yeah. You know, it's like, Martin, urgently, there's a wound care ordering system that we need. It's like, I didn't know anything about bandages in my organisation. Now I do. It's a digital system. You know, food ordering on our inpatient wards, digital system. Yeah. So there are things that we never historically got involved with that now are absolutely intrinsic to safe, effective patient care that we need to be involved with um so i think they do understand the importance but it's those it's sometimes when it involves their own ways of working and prioritizing that for themselves to take the time to collaborate and co-design i think is the is probably the area that really does need to change now you know it's uh, i say it quite a bit but having the confidence to stop and sharpen the axe before carrying on because you're too busy trying to chop down the tree with a blunt axe it's like i know you're busy demands increasing capacities reducing i understand yeah. but if you just stopped for two days and designed this with us yeah. we'd deliver this faster yeah. and you would be more productive and i think that's and the bit better. that just needs to change yeah. yeah yeah absolutely absolutely some really really interesting points there um thank you so much steve do you feel that that has answered your question have you got anything else to add i'm not sure that it will ever answer the question (laughs) but (laughs) you know it's contributed Um, some some useful insights and and it's good actually just to understand that other people are feeling the same pain Um, and sometimes you sit there in your own little world don't you thinking is this only me so uh, yes thank you chaps thank you great stuff brilliant right then martin should we come to you next would you like to go to your question yeah, so surprise, surprise, being a director of digital transformation, mine is about digital transformation. Uh, I'll ask some different ones next time. Uh, but my my question comes from a background of um, national strategic documents, paperless by insert date here, uh, national aspirations, DTAP compliance suppliers by insert date here. So how do we take those national strategic documents, our local inference of those strategies and policies the regional ones across icb levels and and actually ensure pragmatic digital transformation against those um that's a really really big topic that we're facing where when i declare for our organization that's co-designed across our workforce what our strategy is over the next five years how do we ensure that we actually pragmatically deliver that and deliver on those strategic ambitions? And I think that that's something that historically, maybe not at the minute, hopefully not for us, but you never know. Historically, I think we've struggled with. Brilliant. Right. Who would who would like to go first, Philip? I, I think it's an I think it's an amazing question, Martin. I think it's one that I'm sure both myself and Steve struggle with as well, because again, this is about uh, priorities. Um, and it, quite rightly, we have always assured ourselves that the patient gets the best treatment. We all worked for that end. And so clinical priorities uh, are always, and I'm sure you must have this debate every time it comes to capital programme within your organisation. You know, we we want to keep moving forward with transformation. We want to keep modernising our organisation, but this is how much we've got to do it from a capital perspective. Um, And I think that it's about trying to shift the paradigm. It's trying to shift the paradigm more towards saying, actually, by modernising using digital transformation, 
we can actually make a massive impact clinically, which will actually improve how you deliver the service as opposed to, and I'm not playing it down, I, I declare I'm a clinician by background, um, but I'm, I'm not uh, downplaying the fact that our surgeons might need a new operating microscope. Well, that's great, they will. And generally, clinical always trumps everything else, but it, there needs to be this um, real key discussion which says, strategically you know the the plan you've delivered martin and developed and presented to the board to achieve that needs investment and it needs prioritization and it's about the long-term gain not the short-term gain so i think that in terms of supporting that momentum of digital transformation it's about how we really smartly use our limited resources and about looking strategically I'm not talking five years, I'm talking 10 years and, and more, how we invest that money to improve our clinical services by making us able to be more agile in our approach. And I think digital unlocks that technology and unlocks that capability. Brilliant, thank you. Steve, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, again, Moss, I think it's a really interesting question and, and absolutely agree, Philip. It is a challenge we've all faced pretty much every day, isn't it? Um, the national agenda, I, I think, is quite frustrating, isn't it? Because it changes almost as quickly as the government does. Um, and I'm sure there's a relationship there for some obvious reason. But, you know, you talk about um, whatever this week's hot topic is from NHS England, whether it be digital maturity assessments, whether it be what good looks like or EPR convergence and all this other good stuff that we're being asked to do set against a strategy of five, as Phil mentions, 10 years. Well, the goalposts are moving that frequently. How can we ever set out a reasonable stall against which we're going to deliver? Um, so I think it's really hard. Um, I do absolutely agree with Philip about trying to get those clinical wins through digital that comes back to the culture doesn't it of people understanding what digital is and not falling foul of always needing a new operating microscope first and and i absolutely understand clinical need will trump over digital but i think part of our challenge as leaders is ensuring that the organization understands and it's not just our organization it's the so the wider ICS is, it's the regions, understands that if we don't invest in this digital, whatever it is now, mm -hmm. in five years time, we won't have a service to offer. You know, at the moment I had a conversation with our finance director yesterday. I'm looking at about 20 million of capital next year. About 4 million of that is to replace end of life systems that are just there in the background. Mm. Nobody will see any tangible benefit from replacing them yeah, yeah but by ec they'll know when they stop working yeah. you know and the conversation always flows inevitably to well we haven't got 20 million you'll have to prioritize and i think that martin is where your pragmatism comes in because you then have to take a very long very hard look at your list of 20 million or 200 million or whatever it is and almost risk rate them and say well actually if i don't do that one the wheel really will fall off the cart yeah. 
But this one, operating theatre microscope or whatever, we could eke another 12 months out of it. Yeah. yeah. But then, of course, you're into that whole circus, aren't you, of keeping the workforce motivated because they're, but we need to replace that. We haven't got the money to replace that. Well, you haven't got the money to replace it. Digital's no longer fun. So I'll go and find a job somewhere else. And you can see why it, it all starts to connect, can't you? It's very hard. It's very hard. But I think it's a brilliant question. Uh, I'm not sure we've got the answers again. but uh. I, I, uh, It's interesting, though, Steve, because you, you do raise a really important point, which is about managing expectations uh, when it comes to replacing clinical equipment. Because I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and I think that the benchmark for it is how much of the equipment that we decommission to replace with new equipment do we then sell on? And if we're selling it, doesn't that mean we could have used it a little bit longer ourselves? It still has a useful life left. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I think that uh, certainly I I think we probably shy away from those conversations. And maybe that's part of the key that will work in terms of how we prioritise digital. You know, if we took 25% yeah. of our capital investment that we spend on clinical equipment and said, let's make that 25% of the equipment last another year, then it releases significant resources. It's really useful. I think one of the things you've touched on both really is around prioritisation, as you've both said, and, and what I've found over recent years really with the financial constraints is that there's a prioritization of the financial case for any digital transformation over the economic case mm -hmm. and I think that Philip when you said 10 years hence not five yeah. years that's what the WACTA report says as well boards yeah. need to have the confidence to invest in digital yeah. and not expect me to declare what the measurable cashable benefits will yeah. be other than we're improving patient care we're improving yeah. productivity we're addressing the increasing demand that that's not monetizable. It, I mean, it is, but it's not cash releasing. I can't. No. I'm not going to reduce my workforce from that. And no. that is that. That is a barrier. I think that's brought itself into some of the culture of this financial constraint that we have, and some of the areas where actually you really do need some risk taking. Really, you need. And it, you know, it's. I think it's common sense. Everyone nods when they look around the same. and go, yeah, that does improve productivity. This digitalization will improve productivity and workforce well-being and improve care. But I don't know how we're going to afford it. Well, we just listed three major things there that are going to improve. Um, and I think that that is so when it things like paperless, that national target paperless by 2025 or whatever, that is just a money pit, really. Surely. We're just we're just spending money to slightly marginally improve something. And maybe yeah. if we're lucky, we might reduce record storage costs, paper record storage costs and reduce retrieval costs. But that's a productivity gain. So actually yeah. to achieve that national ambition to, you know, pragmatically deliver on that ambition, it's going to cost money. And it's really difficult to write a financial case for that. So, yeah, but it's really interesting insights. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Was there anything anyone wanted to add before we moved on to the last question? Brilliant. Thank you. Um, Philip, we will come to you now for yours. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Katia. I think that the, the question I wanted to put in uh, for us to discuss is really more a system question. We're all working in systems now. Um, one could argue we've always worked in systems. We've just called them something different over the past, certainly 40 years I've been in the NHS. Um, and and it is the question that if if digital is the strategic key that unlocks uh, an NHS that is fit for the future, 
fit in terms of delivery, fit in terms of patient care, quality outcomes. How do ICB boards ensure that uh, the appropriate levels of funding are made available? And how do you work as equal partners with an integrated care system when all organisations actually have differing strategic objectives? So, you know, how, how do we square that circle? And, you know, if Martin and Steve can answer the question for me, I can take it back as a piece of <laughs> genius uh, to our ICB. But um, <laughs> maybe it's a rhetorical question, but I'd be really interested in understanding how Steve and Martin are, are also facing this problem. Right, then you two, which one, which one is going to try and explain? I'll, I'll have a crack if you like. Do it so I'll have a crack and then, uh, Steve, you can fix my answer afterwards, if that's all right. Yeah, do that. or, or just disappear off into the backdrop yeah. of that one, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, issues. Um, so I think, first and foremost, it goes right down to the basics about actually understanding each other's digital strategies and business objectives in detail, that collaborative working. If It'd be fantastic and fascinating to hear if the CIO of our local acute could tell me what the MPFT digital strategy and our trust objectives were. And I think probably she'd do a reasonable job at it because we're working mm. closely together now. Yeah. But then when we've got services in Shropshire, as you well know, for it, could, yeah. could I tell, tell this audience on the podcast today what your digital strategy was? No. And that's a that is problem number one. So if I don't know what your strategic objectives are, that becomes a real issue. So I think ICB boards have got a responsibility to actually ensure that, that there is that practical understanding of each other's strategies, first and foremost, as a baseline. And then you can start developing and aligning where they are, you know, because ultimately a lot of them should align because we're all we're all referencing the same national aspirations um, and then when they differ it'll be for valid reasons because we don't have orthopedic oncology within MPFT and you'll have some slightly different digital requirements there than what we'll have in IAPT services so I think that's I think that's some of the you know warranted variation they call it don't they mm. so but understanding yeah. those differences and where there is that warranted variation of strategic ambition is first and foremost and then absolutely this is where I'll pass on to Steve pooling the resources to deliver where those strategic areas do align. And I don't necessarily mean putting everyone in a single massive unwieldy organisation, but I mean literally just making some meaningful efforts to say you can have this person to work with you on this project from my organisation because we're an ICB or yeah. we're multiple ICBs. And we've yeah. we've gone some way to that at MPFT because I've I've kind of um, practically try to address that by seeking funding through the strategy for a dedicated ICB and PCN digital transformation lead okay. um, and and she uh, she's in the organization now but going to both ICB um, digital meetings and really just trying to collaborate and work on some partnership working there now obviously that's that's a luxury of funding but I do think it's actually mm -hmm. essential um, to ensure that we start taking this journey on to its to its next level, but yeah, I, uh, I don't know what you think, Steve. Like I say, I'll, I'll grab my coat and run for the hills. I think with this one, um, it, it's really hard, isn't it? And yeah, I don't, I don't perceive to sit here and say I've got the answers, but we certainly sit. So we within the East Midlands region, we have five ICBs. Um, we are hosted by one. 
So all of our funding flows to us as an ambulance service through one ICB. Right. What that effectively means is the other four ICBs have a reduced interest in what we're investing in because they're not holding our purse strings. Um, and that's not a criticism of anybody. That's just how how the, the new structure is. And that's what happens. The problem that brings, of course, is if, if we want to do something at a regional level, only one of those partners in the system has got a vested financial interest in whether or not that happens. But what it does then mean is 100% of the finance ask initially lands with that host organisation. And of course, they say, oh, no, we need a new operating microscope. So you can't possibly have whatever it is. Um, I think there are a number of answers to it, or at least a number of approaches. We need to be levering the um, regional NHS England teams more to ensure that not only are our ICS is cited on what our strategies are and what we're all trying to do, but that NHS England regionally also understand. And it's not about the money, Martin, it's back to your point. If we do whatever this thing is, the benefit for the patient across the system will be that. And you know, like you say, how many times do we sit there and say, I can't tell you what the return on investment is going to be, mm-hmm. but it will be better. Yeah. Um, and sometimes accepting that that's OK, because I think we, we get too caught up, don't we, in looking for what's the return? Mm. Don't know, but it'll be better. Mm. And that's all right. Um, so I think we need to lever the central teams more. Um, and something we're, we're starting to work across is the regional commissioning boards. So to address this five ICBs, um, the accountable officer from each ICS attends a regional commissioning board. Um, our chief exec attends uh, and you know, he then pitches as a regional provider. These are the things we are hoping to get support for. And we are starting to see hooks coming into the water now on the back of that. Um, But it's really hard. It's really hard because each ICB rightly is fighting for a very, very finite pot of cash until February, of course, when we all get flooded with capital. But let's not go there. Do you think, Steve, this links back to lack of national uh, direction? and a national strategy for digital, uh, which is meaningful. Because I think that one of the the great problems for us is that each organization has their own digital strategy. Each ICB has their own digital strategy. Most organizations actually don't work with a single ICB. They work with multiple ICBs. And yeah, as as a tertiary specialist unit, we work with I don't know how many ICBs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, and each of those have their own strategy as well. And I think it's where this starts to get so disparate mm. that if there was some sort of really cohesive, clear national strategy, which you know, I mean, I know there, I know there is, but it's whether it's meaningful enough for individual uh, uh, individual organisations. Yeah, and and I think it's really difficult, isn't it, to get that level of detail, but also that holistic overview all in one. It kind of like pulls against each other, those two ambitions in a, in a way, and that's why it's never been cracked. 
but I didn't. Mm. Um, but it is about that, you know, just come back to that understanding, if possible, of of where you're at as an organisation. And one of the things to answer the financial bit of your question, because I didn't, mm. I uh, avoided that uh, deliberately, <laughs> I think, probably. Um, but I think actually just an, what I've started to try and do is just actually get a shared understanding about what we actually spend through our 15.7 minutes. You've wrote some figures, Steve, so I'll do, you know, it's it's all available on the public domain. So 15.7 million pounds recurrent revenues, our digital budget. And I've broken down some of that to our, you know, colleagues across the ICS is to say, this is what I spend on my clinical system, yeah. number one, and clinical system number yeah. two, and specialist clinical system number three B. Uh, so there's lots of differences. And, and I've made that funding available because then from that basic understanding you then can get some actual local opportunities so when conversations like EPR convergence come up yeah well we're going to need to know what the opportunities are what the what the baseline is and I think that understanding both pay and non-pay commitments in some yeah, detail absolutely. for each yeah, part yeah, will help will help with that yeah. and I think historically when we've been more competitive as an NHS there's been a bit of a temptation to withhold some of that or not really but actually I think the more we the more that we're open and share that with colleagues the more opportunities we might seek you spend that much on Microsoft licensing or backup that it's that kind of you know very practical things that will release more cash more recurrent revenue from those existing kind of like foundational IT commitments potentially to then release yeah. into some more exciting areas I absolutely agree with all of that Martin um, and I guess my question really didn't have an answer. I think my question uh, opened up um, the, certainly the thoughts that are going on in my organization discussions within and I'm sure within everybody else's. So it, it was it was slightly rhetorical. Well, it was totally rhetorical, to be honest. <laughs> it, it's interesting, though, isn't it? And, and Martin mentioned the EPR convergence agenda, and, and I think that that was a really and still is a really interesting piece of work because conceptually why wouldn't we yeah absolutely but actually when you get into the details of it are we talking about horizontal or vertical convergence because within the east midlands region when i speak to acute and talk to them about what their view of an epr is it's world apart from what our view of an epr and ambulance is so the likelihood of us ever converging is zero because the products are just completely different clinically anyway. So then you you almost force yourself into, well, OK, a logical convergence within EPR would be vertically within the ambulance sector, for example. Oh, yeah, but I like my EPR. Oh, and I like my EPR. So I, th I think part and parcel of fixing this is the nimbyism. We've got to change. And it comes back to your point, Martin, about sharing resources sharing learning and experiences between yeah. partners yeah. because just because your epr or my epr is the current flavor of the day and it can be any system can't it why does that necessarily mean that's the one we have to have if we know what we're aiming for and we have a defined standard for it and let's not get onto the conversation about standards but if we all know what we're aiming for, why can't we do better? Because we can save money and we can be more efficient, but we've got to have the appetite to do it. And the tools have got to be there to support us to do that. And I do think that then comes back, Philip, to your national steer, your national mm -hmm. direction of this is what we want from you folks. And we will fund you for this 
But if you go off piste, don't necessarily look to us for financial support. I mean, you, you can you can almost hear the discussion that took place at the Nationwide Building Society when they consumed the Staffordshire Building Society, Portman and a whole lot of others and said, well, we'll let them run their own uh, electronic um, databases and we'll let them do whatever they absolutely not. What they said was, this is our system. And this is what we'll use. And I'm sure that's the same discussion that happens across banking. I mean, I can be in Edinburgh, I can be in Truro, I can be, for heaven's sake, in a Barclays bank in New York and get a bank statement yeah. and make a transaction. Uh, and, and, and I think this is where we need some real, very, very clear national strategic guidance, particular, I think particularly around the EPR. It's it's a nonsense that we're all trying to sort out something different. Um, you know, we're using this one or that one or whatever. You know, it's time for a change, isn't it? I think on on that, it's just quite interesting that recently NHS trusts have been uh, requested from the you know the central teams to feed back on their suppliers' DTAC compliance, yeah. so making sure that yeah. they're safe and secure and everything. But isn't it interesting that the central team didn't do that on behalf? of all the providers <laughs> and the onus is on the right to evidence that so you know first and foremost look at your own procurement frameworks your own systems the hssf framework and all the acronyms yeah. of all the other frameworks yeah. and ask yeah. those suppliers first on behalf of everyone and then go to the unwarranted variation and say if they're not on this list now can you go out and yeah. check that they're there and explain Absolutely. why you're using them but that that ownership of some of these issues centrally kind of you know that's i think i think it's a cultural thing around the, the national strategy and the national ambition actually it is like you say for it is sort of devolved down and said no you, this is your problem we'll set some loose framework up here around it mm. but then you guys crack on and tell us if it's going to be done or not and i think that kind of needs to be improved and will only be done so through greater collaborative working with our regional nhs england leads like you said about 20 minutes ago steve so yeah i think yeah. that's Brilliant. Well, you know, it's been great to have you all together today to be able to, you know, at least start a bit of collaboration. Um, I'm hoping that you'll be able to continue your relationships moving forward from here. Um, that takes us to the end of the podcast. Was there anything that anybody wanted to add before we conclude? Just to say many thanks to Steve and Martin for a great discussion. And thanks, Katia, for bringing us together to do that. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, yeah, likewise. Really it. No, it's it's been a pleasure. I just I just want to say thank you so much to to all of you guys for, for getting involved. Um and thanks for sharing your insights on the topic.